Back during the dot-com era, investors threw their money at anything that had to do with the internet. There was a young man named Nick, and Nick launched a gaming marketing company, a platform back in 1999, and investors practically begged Nick to take their money. Four million dollars to start up this idea. Now Nick is on the less than prestigious list of the biggest fails in dot-com history. Then at the ripe old age of 26, all that experience (laughs) behind him working for him Nick decided it was time for a vacation. Nick and some friends took a surfing vacation around the world. How you do this after losing $4 million of other people's money, I have no idea, but that's not the moral of the story. And while they were surfing around the world, they were having conversations about how cool would it be if there was a camera that we could use to take pictures of our surfing, our adventures, the things that we're doing, some sort of a camera that did not exist. And Nick went home with that thought, that idea. And he did something that I still can't believe he was successful at doing, but he asked his family for money. Dad's... How many of us would say, even your mother would say no to that after losing $4 million? But his family loaned him. They scraped together $250,000. And they said, Nick, here you go. And it wasn't a whole lot longer, but by 2006, a company known as GoPro was bringing in $355 million in revenue annually. If you think that's something, within 10 years, they would be bringing in $1.62 billion in revenue a year. And our little guy, Nick, he was worth $5 billion. Don't get jealous, he lost most of it. Let's get back to our story that we started last week, the history of what was happening in the world in the 5th century. But a man named Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. His armies tore down the walls of Jerusalem It was 586 B.C. Things sat dormant in Judah for a while. But then Cyrus, the king of Persia, defeats Nebuchadnezzar and he commissions the temple to be rebuilt. Our guy Zerubbabel and the prophet Ezra, they oversee the rebuilding of the temple. It takes a long time to get done. And then another guy comes on the scene. And his name was 
Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was a godly man who was from Judah. He was a Jew. That's where we get the word Jew. It's from the word Judah and Judea. And that's where his family was from. But remember, it's been more than 70 years now. So, So Nehemiah wasn't born in his homeland. He was born in exile. But Nehemiah, he was a godly man. He lived in the city of Susa, the capital of Persia, and he had a job. Remember I told you that that Nebuchadnezzar took all the smart people. This is not the the only time in history this has happened. This has happened um, not not all that many years ago in the world where someone invaded another country and they took or killed all the intelligent people because they were not, they either wanted them for themselves or they wanted to deplete that nation of a lot of its, of its intelligence. It's happened before. So Nebuchadnezzar took all these smart, wealthy, accomplished people. He took them back to his country. Well, now now Persia is in control, and Persia has gathered many of those people to itself, and Nehemiah was one of those people. And his job was he did something for the king. He did something for then-king Artaxerxes. And his job was to taste and drink everything before the king ate it or drank it. He was called the cupbearer. He had to be the most trusted person that worked for the king because the easiest way to take the king out of the picture if you wanted to remove him would be to poison him. And so when a meal would come in, Our guy, Nehemiah, he'd have to take a few bites of it. He'd have to make sure that in no way was it poison. When when something came for the king to drink, he would have to be the one that that would take the first drink, that would make sure that it was not going to ultimately cause the death of the king. He was the most highly trusted official in the Persian government. And although he was loyal, although he was trusted, he was worried about his homeland. He was worried about Jerusalem. He was worried about what was happening in Judah. And the Bible tells us that it moved him to tears. He got some news from the homeland that the the walls were still torn down. Even though the temple had been rebuilt, the, the city was still in ruins. He mourns, he fasts, he prays, asking God to rebuild the walls. And while he was on the job, the king notices that he was sad. This was not his normal demeanor. This would not be advisable to be the demeanor in front of the king because then it's about you and you need it to be about the king. Let me put in a note here. If every time anybody asks you, how are you doing, if your answer is negative, if your answer is filled with sadness, 
what's going to happen is that eventually your answers will fail to move the needle. Nehemiah was not sad all the time. This was a different occasion. Can you imagine how Nehemiah must have been praying that God would give him wisdom in this moment because the king says, what's wrong with you? Why are you so sad? Nehemiah tells the king about the walls around the city of Jerusalem in his homeland. And the king's response was, what do you need? What can we learn? from Nehemiah's experience. I believe God has something very specific for us here today. If you're taking notes, I want you to I want you to remember this. Number 1, don't be afraid to ask the king. Nehemiah chapter 12. Or excuse me, I believe it's chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Look at this sentence. I was, this is Nehemiah, I was very much afraid. Why was Nehemiah afraid? I'll tell you why. We find the answer in Esther chapter 4, verse 11. We know the story of Esther. In verse 11, it says that all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. Scholars believe that Nehemiah was afraid because Nehemiah dared to come into the presence of the king without being invited, without prior authorization. Do you know what prior authorization is? Prior authorization is what you need from the insurance company in order to have a particular medical procedure done and to approach the king without, well, to, to continue in your medical process without prior authorization. You know what that means? You're going to pay the price yourself. And in Nehemiah's scenario, in his situation, it meant exactly the same thing. To approach without prior authorization mean you had to, meant you had to be willing to pay the price. And the price could be death. Aren't you glad that's not how God works? Hmm? The creator of the universe, the God of all gods... Do you know he wants you to come to him? I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Look at what he says. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. I love Jesus' words in Matthew 10. Come to me. 
The king wants you to come into his presence. Man, we just sang. We literally just sang about that, about the presence of God. The king wants us in his presence. Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 8, he said, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Nehemiah received a letter to provide him safe passage. He received timber resources to rebuild the walls. Uh, He received a military escort. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, the writer of Hebrews says this, "Then let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we, me, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Friends, do not be afraid to ask for God's help when there is an area in your life that needs to be rebuilt. We don't like it when our back is up against the wall. Half the people in this room, on average, are men. They don't like to ask help for anything. It's true. Drive with us when we're lost. We will lie to you. I'm not really lost. I know where I'm going. I just don't know how to get to where I want to be. None of us like to ask for help. Do you know this? God loves it when our back is up against the wall because that means he knows we understand there's no place else to go for help. And we're going to sometimes begrudgingly, okay, God, I've done everything else I can do. And we think that's a good thing. I've done everything else I can do. God, I'm coming to you. God loves that. So don't be afraid to approach the king. Number two, don't hesitate to assess the situation. When something is broken in our lives, we are often afraid to look closely at it. I didn't expect anybody to say amen there. (laughs) I didn't expect it. But it's the truth. If something is not working correctly, if there's a degree of brokenness, we don't want to look at it closely. We don't want to take an honest assessment of our brokenness, whether it's our integrity, our honesty, our character, our faithfulness, our commitments, whatever it is, we don't like to look at it because we don't like to be reminded that we're broken. Nehemiah, after the king has told him that he would help, immediately makes the thousand-mile journey from Susa, the capital of Persia, to Jerusalem, a journey that would take three to four months. Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 11, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates, which had been destroyed. 
by fire. Nehemiah needed to see the extent of the damage to the wall that was around the city. You know, we can get pretty touchy when it comes to self-reflection. When it comes to assessing the damage, the brokenness in our own lives, we get pretty owly. Just, just poke at it, just touch it, and you're going to find out. You guys are really quiet. You're going to find out. Paul says something pretty interesting when writing about the Lord's Supper to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, he said, everyone, not some people, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. We need to look in the mirror and take a serious look at our hearts. We may not like some of the things, some of the brokenness that we see. The fact that we realize I'm a fixer-upper. I'm a project. We don't like that. But I love what Jesus' disciple John says in 1 John chapter 1. He said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, we need to be honest with ourselves and call sin a sin and call brokenness brokenness. Otherwise, we're just lying to ourselves. Number three, don't forget that God will fight for you. We sang earlier this morning, the battle belongs to the Lord. You might feel overwhelmed by the reality of your brokenness. In Nehemiah chapter four, verse 20, he said, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us. They were going to be under attack. They were overwhelmed at times, but Nehemiah reminds them, our God will fight for us. Now this doesn't mean that Nehemiah and his people didn't have any work to do. This didn't mean that Nehemiah sat back in a lawn chair looking at the wall just waiting for God to do it. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 17, the second half. He said, those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Verse 18, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. In other words, they had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. When you engage in a rebuild in your life, you're going to have to work at it. It doesn't just happen. It's going to take discipline. It's going to take effort. It's going to take courage. It's going to take dedication. But you will not be doing it on your own. This wasn't the first time that God had promised to fight for his people. In Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, 
Moses is leading the Hebrew people and they're going to go across the Red Sea. And Moses said, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Paul reminds us of this great truth in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, where he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? God will fight for you and for your rebuild, but you will need to be part of it. And number four, as the worship team comes, don't forget the enemy is afraid. Did you hear that? Don't forget the enemy is afraid. At that time, the wall around Jerusalem was two and a half miles long. That tells you how large the city was. The wall was two and a half miles around. The wall had an average height of 39 feet. The wall was eight feet wide. Nehemiah and the residents of Jerusalem completed rebuilding that wall. And unlike the temple, which took years and years, with, with years where nothing happened at all, Nehemiah and the people of the city were able to rebuild that wall in 52 days. Their enemies were not happy. Their enemies were intimidated. We read it in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Friends, I want you to understand something that Satan fears when God rebuilds the broken aspects of our lives. He's afraid. He's afraid. The demonic forces of hell shudder in fear of God. James chapter 2, verse 19. James, the brother of Jesus, he writes, You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. But you see, when God rebuilds your life, the enemy realizes that he doesn't have any authority in that area in your life anymore. And it's not good for his business. Satan fears the believer who is submitted to God. That's why James goes on in chapter 4 and he says, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why? Because he's afraid. He's afraid. If you allow the presence and power of God to rebuild the brokenness in your life, it sends the enemy running in fear. So let me ask you this question. Is there an area in your life that resembles a construction dumpster that has been lit on fire? I'll wait. I'll wait. Do 
you feel like your life is in a pile of ashes, abject failure in some part of your life, and, and we're, let's face it, we're good at not letting people see that, okay? There's a line from an old, old horror flick. At least I thought it was the first time I saw it. And it says, from the ashes of disaster come the roses of success. Look it up when you get home. It's hard to go through a rebuilding process, but when we do, friends, do not be afraid to ask the king because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and he wants you to come to him for help. It's hard, but we need to honestly assess our situation and we need to remember that he will fight for us and that when we are rebuilt, the enemy will run in fear. Anybody believe that today? Come on, stand with me, will you? Father, this is a critical moment. A critical moment. Because this is the moment when we begin to talk ourselves out of it. Father, I don't know what rebuilding projects are in this room. I don't know. You know. Your Holy Spirit knows. And each of us know what rebuilding needs to be done in our lives. Father, I also know that right now the enemy is working overtime to convince us whatever we do, don't move. But Father, I'm going to send out an invitation that if we have a building project that needs to take place, a, a rebuild that needs to happen in our lives, I want to invite you to come to this altar while the worship team leads us in that song that we sang that the battle belongs to our God and let's worship and let's lay this fight at God's feet and let's tell him God rebuild my life as they sing you come